This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. More federal agencies are starting to put plans into action to return to the office. The newest agency in this group is the Department of Justice. Federal News Network reports that DOJ has updated its workforce safety plan with new guidelines for vaccinations, testing, and more. Other agencies were working to return to the office include the Department of Agriculture and the Social Security Administration. The IRS is working to reduce a backlog of tax returns and correspondence, but some lawmakers want the agency to take it a step further. NextGov reports that a group of Congress members want the IRS to use overtime and employee reassignments to address the backlog. The IRS has taken some steps to work through the issues by tasking surge teams with going through the backlog. The leader of the FAA, Stephen Dickinson, will step down on March 31st. Federal Times reports that this resignation follows some criticisms of the agency, including its handling of questions about 5G aircraft interference. Dickinson has held his current role since August 2019. The White House has not yet commented on a replacement for the position. After the fatal suicide bombing at the Kabul airport last summer, the Army conducted an investigation. That 2,000-page report was released to the Washington Post through a Freedom of Information Act request. It provides a detailed account of the evacuation and the effort to secure the airport as thousands tried to escape the Taliban. Dan Lamoth is a reporter for The Washington Post and has been writing about that investigation. Dan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So what does the report indicate about the coordination between the State Department and the Defense Department on the withdrawal? Uh, it indicates that it was a lot more strained than it seemed, seemed at the time. Uh, obviously, we all have the, the, the uh, desperate images that we saw back in August. Uh, but what we've got here is, is some behind-the-scenes accounts, uh, frustration from the commanders on the ground with the uh, acting ambassador, Ross Wilson, uh, frustration and a lack of clarity on, on how, uh, how much of a sense of urgency the uh, Biden administration was acting with, uh, and, and just this belief that things were, you know, always going to be difficult. and that if they did more to prepare ahead of time, things might have gone better. So your article says that the State Department showed a lack of urgency initially. What evidence is there of that? Uh, there are a few things they point to specifically. Uh, one thing is that the uh, acting ambassador wanted to keep an embassy open as long as possible, uh, even as the, uh, the reality of the situation on the ground became increasingly desperate. Uh, the, he it, it was looking to keep things open through at least the end of August. Uh, the commanders on the ground, especially as it became increasingly obvious that major cities were falling, uh, said, you know, we really need to move faster than that. Ultimately, uh, officials in D.C. eventually called the acting ambassador uh, and said, you got to go. I, I wonder if the report shows that the Defense Department wanted to start the withdrawal earlier and that the White House and State Department resisted that recommendation. I think there's two things going on. One, the Defense Department was looking to stay in Afghanistan longer, uh, you know, prior to the president making the decision last April uh, to withdraw everyone. However, once that withdrawal decision was made, uh, the De Defense Department was looking to remove troops as quickly as possible in order to kind of prevent 
uh, attacks they may face, uh, sort of not only in the vein of the Taliban, but also you're pulling out and you've got Afghan soldiers and others who, you know, who may take that uh, very personally. And there was concerns about what they call green on blue attacks. Uh, as it comes to the evacuation, that's sort of a separate conversation in their eyes. Uh, the Defense, Depart Defense Department was looking to stage equipment, stage people, uh, stage food at the airport, and there were a lot of uh, strings attached and problems that made that difficult. Do the military commanders think that those decisions placed American troops ordered to carry out the withdrawal in greater danger than was actually necessary? Uh, I think yes. I think it, especially as it comes to uh, because you didn't begin the evacuation earlier, once you did, you were kind of boxed in and, and you saw those desperate images. You know, they had discussed earlier, do we keep open more airfields and do this from multiple locations? Uh, they had discussed, you know, can we evacuate beginning in, you know, July or something even earlier than that uh, and do it in, in a way where not everything gets compressed down to really just two weeks. What did the commander on the ground say about all the calls that were coming in from the White House, Congress, others, trying to get individuals out of Afghanistan? Uh, there is great frustration up and down the chain of command in Afghanistan with what they were getting uh, from both formal uh, lines of inquiry uh, from the White House and others, and then also uh, everyone from retired generals to random, uh, you know, former sergeants that, you know, people on the ground had served with in the past. Everybody had somebody they were trying to get out. Uh, and, the, and because this was set up so rapidly, they had major problems fielding all these calls, these emails, these other messages they were getting. Everybody was trying to, you know, can you get the one guy in the crowd with the red hat on was the sort of uh, theme they were dealing with. And this is in a crush of humanity that was desperate with major threats throughout the crowd. And as the evacuation progressed, there were more and more threats of suicide bombers or a suicide bomber incoming. And, and to address all those requests, they had to actually divert resources. Yes, they eventually pulled staff off of other things they were doing and specifically set up sort of a communication cell that really specifically was handling, you know, what do we do with all of these calls? And these calls came as far as the Vatican. I mean, it was a real eclectic mix of people trying to intervene and, and help certain individuals in Afghanistan. You know, Danny, there were reports that the Marines came under gunfire at the airport. What do we? What do you know about that? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. It was a. It's a. It's a confusing situation, and I'm not sure we'll ever have complete clarity on that. Uh, early this month, the Pentagon released uh, sort of their top line findings of this investigation. Uh, which said that the, the, the major loss of life uh, in that bombing all occurred because of a single explosion. Uh, that was sort of their overall findings. You know, they, they did everything from, you know, go to the morgue to speak to people who, you know, had been under the attack. Once you dig down into witness statements, though, uh, there were a lot of rank-and-file Marines who thought they were under attack. Uh, some of them opened fire themselves. Uh, they thought they were being shot at. Uh, and these weren't just like inexperienced young Marines. I mean, some of them were like 10 and 15 year veterans with previous combat tours. They know what gunfire sounds like and they know whether or not they're being shot at. Dan, how is the White House responding to the allegations in the report? The White House is stuck uh, to sticking with the top line findings, basically saying that we agree with 
you know, and, and you know, accept the findings of the Pentagon that this single explosion caused this loss of life. It gets a little complicated when it gets to the, the witness statements under that. Uh, in particular, we, you may recall about a week or so ago, uh, President Biden said that he was rejecting uh, the accounts of uh, the commanders on the ground. Uh, and, and what he exactly meant by that was a little complicated. You know, was he talking about, you know, he didn't, you know, he was dismissing this criticism. Uh, we never really got a straight line answer on what he meant by that. And finally, Dan, I mean, the report is 2,000 pages long. You've written three articles about it. Will you be doing more reporting about the ev evacuation? Uh, I would never say never. At this point, I, 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 it's actually, I think, three major articles and a couple, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, responses to the articles kind of stories that I've done I think we need to keep uh, finding out what we don't know uh, I think at this point we've, we've really done a good job of plumbing what's in the report though all right well Dan thanks very much for joining us coming next a strategy for deploying economic tools in times of crisis straight ahead on government matters asking if those tools will become a bigger part of response efforts you're watching WJLA 24 7 news As the relationship between the U.S. and China gets increasingly tense, both countries are turning to economic tools as a core part of foreign policy. But the U.S. lacks a clear strategy on how and when to deploy those measures in response to crises. That's according to Emily Kilcrease, director for the Energy, Economics and Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Emily, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. In your report, you use the term coercive economic statecraft. Can you give us an example of what that means? Sure. So coercive economic statecraft is basically any time a country is trying to exploit its position in the global economy for geopolitical ends. So one example that uh, hit the mainstream attention was back in 2019 uh, when the NBA got caught up in some economic coercion. Uh, there was a tweet from a Houston Rockets general manager uh, about the Hong Kong protest. And immediately the response from China was swift and jeopardized the NBA's position uh, in the very lucrative China market. So it's a great example of how China in particular can leverage uh, it, the heft of its markets to pursue political objectives. Yeah, and the New York Times also had a recent article, not just the NBA, but a lot of American institutions are silencing themselves and self-censoring in order to gain economic access to China. That's economic coercion, isn't it? It absolutely is. And look, American companies trying to operate in China are in a really difficult position. It's the world's uh, second largest economy, uh, a huge market uh, for U.S. companies trying to sell into that market to that growing and large consumer base. At the same time, they're not at liberty to uh, express concern about China's human rights abuses, uh, concerns about China's political system. Uh, and so we are seeing a lot of companies who are trying to stay out of it or stay quiet. Uh, otherwise, they're jeopardizing their access to this really profitable market. So one recommendation in your report is for the U.S. to work with partner countries to apply joint pressure and not work alone. Are other countries going to be willing to risk retaliation by China? What do you think? It's a good question, and it's quite complicated. I mean, a lot of countries, and this is something we saw in our report, uh, you know, they are concerned about retaliation from China. For a lot of these countries, particularly in Europe and in Asia, China's their largest training partner, and so they do need to be worried about that. 
At the same time, the only way that we're going to reduce uh, the effectiveness of this tactic is to work together. Uh, basically, the idea of working together and bringing as many friends to the fight as you can. Uh, so if we combine our economic leverage uh, between the United States and Europe and major Asian allies, uh, you know, I think that's the only way we're going to be able to push back on this trend from China. You know, a drawback, though, that is that the extra coordination with other countries will slow down the response time. Do you see that as a disadvantage? It's true that it might slow things down, um, but we're looking at a problem that is systemic and structural and will persist for years and decades to come. And so I would argue that that little bit of extra time to make sure that we have an effective and durable response and one that China knows will be coming as we play this game over and over again is ultimately the better response, even if it does take us a little bit longer to get our act together uh, in the beginning. You also recommend bound engagement, where American actions are constrained within domestic and international rules and norms. Doesn't that put the U.S. at a disadvantage since China isn't bound by those rules? It's a good question, but look, I mean, the United States has a strategic interest in stability and predictability in the global economy and the international trading system. And so when we are engaging in course of economic statecraft or when we're responding to economic coercion from China, you know, we should be doing so in a way that supports rather than undermines that stability and predictability of the trading system. Uh, you know, and it's also worth keeping in mind that economic coercion is just one piece of the broader economic relationship that we're trying to manage with with china you know we need to get a functioning wto up and running we need to have a rules-based trading system in the pacific region where the united states is working with its partners to set rules and norms and so if we're trying to achieve that but at the same time uh, breaking those rules and norms that's not going to be a very effective strategy over the long term at the same time emily are there economic tools that china can use that the u.s can't use We've certainly seen that, and this is what we refer to in our report as off-book measures. I mean, we have to keep in mind that China's economy is a state-controlled economy. They have all the levers over their economy. They can do these things uh, like off-book measures is what we call them in the reports. They can uh, organize commercial boycotts of brands like H&M who are criticizing human rights practices. They can just have Lithuania disappear from their customs registry and block imports and exports in a very kind of clever uh, off-book manner. The United States doesn't do that. We are an open economy with limited restrictions, and any restrictions that we do place on trade and investment are done in a, uh, based on rule of law democratic principles. So that's a clear distinction between how the United States and China does this. Um, but I wouldn't argue that China's way is, is better or more effective. Ultimately, I think it's a destabilizing impact and will uh, decrease the commercial attractiveness of their market. Well, you do say that persuasive rather than coercive tactics will improve the U.S.'s negotiating position. Explain why, because China uses coercive tactics. So why shouldn't the U.S.? Yeah, it's a distinction between who we're trying to coerce, right? I mean, so we clearly are, are, are and will be using some coercive tactics against China. But we also need to make sure that we're not inadvertently coercing our allies who we need to have on our side in order to have an accessible strategy uh, for pushing back on China. So when we say we should be using persuasion, it's really just keeping in mind the sensitivity of, of our allies and making sure that we are consulting and coordinating with them up front uh, when we're developing strategies and implementing strategies to push back against China. All right. Well, Emily, thanks very much for being on the program. Up next, the Air Force Research Lab is working to transform space-based solar power into a usable energy source by 2025. Straight ahead on Government Matters, will it actually work? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The sun beams more solar energy onto Earth per hour than humans can use in a year. 30% of that energy reflects back into space. The Air Force Research Lab is working to transform space-based solar power into a usable energy source for national defense and the general public by 2025. Andrew Williams is Deputy Technology Executive Officer at the Air Force Research Lab. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thanks, happy to be here. So explain to us first in non-technical terms how this would work. How will a satellite collect power from the sun, convert it, and then send it to Earth? Right, so the approach with space solar power that we are working on at AFRL is to put a large deployable structure on orbit that uses solar arrays uh, and photovoltaic conversion, which is basically taking the energy of the sun and turning that into electricity. And then in a very thin sandwich panel, we take that electrical energy from the sun, convert it into RF energy or radio frequency energy, and we basically beam that down to the ground where you can receive it with a rectifying antenna on the ground. It's a little like how you would charge your phone, except from doing it from uh, really far away and using the sun as the power source in order to get that energy. So Andrew, what's the efficiency of that conversion chain that you talked about? Like if I start with one watt of solar, what do I get at the end? It's pretty low right now. And that's the reason why we're really focused at developing the technology at AFRL. We're right now in the, about the two to 15 or two to 5% trying to get to about the 15% range. But to try to put that in perspective, a lot of that is just lost in the solar array efficiency. Solar arrays state of the art operate about 33%. So the sun generates a lot of energy, but it takes a lot of work to try to convert that to usable power that we can actually use on the ground. Hence the reason why we need a fairly large structure on orbit and actually to get in, in order to get usable power on the ground. You know, the idea of harvesting solar power and delivering it to Earth has been studied for decades. What's new now? There's a few things that have changed. Mostly it is focused at improving the deployable structures technologies that we have. We've advanced that considerably. Our ability to create a thin sandwich panel that does the direct solar energy conversion from the sun to RF so that we can beam it to the ground really allows us to create a much smaller package that uh, we can launch on orbit. Contributing as well is the redu reduction that commercial has been in launch in providing launch costs. And that has been beneficial so that we can put larger structures on orbit for a lower cost and start to be more competitive with those energy technologies on the ground, especially when you consider how hard and how expensive it is to get a gallon of diesel fuel into a forward operating base. And that's really what we're trying to drive after is. That, and that's what I, market. sorry, that's what I was gonna ask you about is why is this attractive to the defense department? Right, and, and that it is, it is looking to power forward operating bases, uh, disadvantaged users out in the field where it's not, always easy to get electrical power, especially when you're carrying batteries and things like that. The other advantage that we have and why we're interested in the Department of Defense is that it's uh, day night, it is all weather. Uh, we can beam the RF through clouds, through storms. And so instead of putting a solar array on the ground, if we actually beam it from space, we always have access to that power. Additionally, 
there is a human cost that we have to worry about when we actually try to deliver uh, supplies to the front lines and supply chains are always a challenge. And so getting the diesel out to the field uh, or puts people's lives at risk. If we can actually beam that power from space, then we might be able to actually save a service member lives that may be lost in, in transporting that fuel to a forward operating base or location. And what about for the U.S. Space Force? Would this have an impact with their mission and operations? We're evaluating whether or not we can actually use power beaming to, to go from satellite to satellite, but we already have a pretty efficient solar array approach uh, up, in the, uh, up in space. What we're really looking at is how can we drive a new space application that would have advantage to the DOD user on the ground we're also exploring other things like commercial applications. We think this may be similar to like GPS where there is a military application, but there's always also a really useful civilian application. And so beaming power to any place where you don't necessarily have a, an easy wall plug to get into. So natural disaster relief, uh, you know, people hiking out in the mountains, all sorts of things that could create new commercial applications if we could actually beam power anywhere on the planet at any time, day or night. Well, Andrew, is there a chance that this technology won't even work in the end, or are you pretty confident? We're confident that the technology will work overall, but there are significant challenges that we still have to work through. And that's why it's really a good project for the Air Force Research Lab. There's really five areas that we have to improve upon, power generation, deployable structures, thermal control, and the power beaming and the actual forming of the RF panel. We think we can do it all, and but we're taking a step approach in order to do that, starting with a small panel and building it up to a large array that we actually have to do on orbit. Really to get to usable power, we have to improve our current technology by three orders of magnitude, which is not easy, but it is doable. All right, well, Andrew, thanks so much for being on the program. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. And find us on social media. Subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Facebook, we're on Twitter at GovMattersTV, and connect with us on LinkedIn at Government Matters Media. Send us your comments about the program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor. Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband 
originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.